0: Welcome to the C-Suite podcast that we're recording at Money 2020 Europe in Amsterdam. I'm Russell Goldsmith and together with Romy Wilson, uh, we will be chatting to a number of the speakers and attendees from the conference.
1: We hope that through these short conversations, we'll be able to provide you with a real flavour and understanding of the topics and issues being discussed here at the event.
0: So, I'm joined uh, now by Julia Hoggart, the CEO of the London Stock Exchange. Uh, Julia, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me. Um,
0: Now, you took part in a panel earlier today about creating dynamism in capital markets. Can you share a little um, of the highlights of what was spoken about?
2: Well, it, was, it turned out to be quite a long panel because it was an, on the encore stage and we got called back for an encore. Um, so it's quite a lot to tell you about. But we were talking about the evolution of the listing regime in the UK and how much change is going on right now, particularly relevant for fintechs, actually, because it'll make it much easier for fintech companies to list in London using the next generation of the regime. We're also talking about increasing the dynamism in research so that we could improve the quality of research for next generation technology companies in the UK. Uh, We were talking about enhancing the amount of pension investment in the equity markets, both private and public. And Sheldon Mills, who's an executive director at the FCA, had to talk about crypto as well. And I was very happy to leave that to him. And then uh, we talked about the idea of creating the first ever crossover venue between the private markets and the public markets. So, we got through a lot in our time on stage. How
0: long was your session uh, scheduled for?
2: (laughs) Well, we had 20 minutes and then we came back for another 15, but we actually overran and so it was 20. So, about 40 minutes in
0: Fantastic. Uh, Why was it so important to have that discussion here at Money 2020?
2: Money 2020 is a fascinating venue. I mean, it's, it's huge and it's getting bigger every year. The first time I came was just after COVID and it seemed quite restrained in comparison to what we have today. But it illustrates the vibrancy of the tech sector in Europe actually and around the world. And it's increasingly a globalized industry. And realizing that the, the London market is a really solid place for companies that do this work uh, to find the financing that they need is an important part of, of how we do our job. London has sought to be a global hub for fintech. The regulators have sought to be some of the most dynamic and supporting competition in financial services anywhere in the world, so much so that it's actually copied by other regulators. Um, and we have a brilliant um, capital market that can serve the needs of those companies. And making sure that we can make that case in front of this audience is really important to us.
0: There's a lot of narrative around perception versus reality when it comes to public markets. What should listeners be thinking about here?
2: I think it's actually listen to the facts and not to the headlines sometimes. Now, one of the things that happens in the UK, I say regularly, is that we're very good in the UK at standing back and admiring the problem. Sometimes that means we're less good at realizing how much progress is being made and what we already have. The UK is a world leader in fintechs and we have a world leading capital market. Put those two together and that's something really quite remarkable. But that's not how we talk about it. And I think sometimes we need to get better at talking about it that way. But it's also just about putting the cold, hard mark to market of what the proposition is in London versus other jurisdictions. And when you actually do that, London has a really, really compelling case as a financing venue. I
0: know we're on a tight deadline, so I've got one final question for you. What's been your key takeaway from Money 2020 today?
2: Just how enthusiastic I am about the sector and how vibrant it is actually. And I think it's, it's gone from being a sector where there were a, a growing number of companies and possibly you'd have the venture community, but you wouldn't necessarily have as many institutions. Now you've got the huge institutions here as well, thinking about how some of that technology could be incorporated into their businesses, um, how they finance it. And so it is here to stay. And it makes our sector better. It is the innovation and the change and the dynamism that means that ultimately we provide services better. So, that I am very enthusiastic as a consequence of that.
0: Julia Hoggart, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you very much for having me. I'm joined
1: by Emma Hagen, Chief Risk and Compliance Officer at Clearbank. Thanks for joining us today, Emma. You're taking part in a panel later this week discussing banking as a service. And um, for those unaware, could you just quickly explain what we're talking about with that and why it's such a benefit to providers?
3: Uh, sure, so um, banking as a service is in effect uh, the provision of individual banking services by an underlying banking provider that are distributed into uh, non FI and FI, so financial institution environments, um, by non financial institutions and financial institutions. And they often involve the use of an aggregator in that service so someone who isn't regulated, who packages up all these individual services from an underlying bank provider and then kind of sells, resells them out effectively into those uh, environments. And the reason uh, why it's a big, uh, a big benefit at the moment is because there is a real driver around the attentional economy. When people are using a particular service, be it social media or elsewhere in terms of an app or a website, companies have realized there's real value in capturing other things that they can do with those users while they're on their platform, rather than having them go to alternate websites. And so, if you like, the provision of financial services through those same platforms captures more of that attention from an underlying consumer and therefore drives increased revenues for that company.
1: What are the concerns around the current governance model?
3: Um, So originally, the big driver for BAS and the investment in it was around technology and capability. And what it was seen as removing a barrier on the regulatory burden for providers, particularly through the use of these aggregators in the middle of it. However, that hasn't turned out to be true. And in research we did last year, a third of fintechs said that regulatory scrutiny was a big driver for them in how they were looking at BAS. And equally, 20% of fintechs uh, said that actually they had a direct regulatory intervention as a result of their BAS provider, which is a huge number. And so the kind of transparency and the role of BAS providers in that kind of end-to-end service delivery uh, and also the roles and responsibilities in terms of governance and making sure that everybody in that chain is doing what they need to do and the clarity around that is a big concern given the prevalence of it in the market today and hopefully where it's going to go in the future.
1: Where does ClearBank sit within this part of the fintech ecosystem?
3: So ClearBank is an embedded banking provider and that's slightly different to Bass. Uh, so what we do is we provide banking products, uh, particularly accounts, directly into a FI's environment. And so, that our ba- a bank account product is directly embedded into their service. And with that, we embed the risk and compliance controls into that service. And so, we, uh, that's typically directly, uh, directly done. That's the role we play, and um, particularly in embedded banking versus BAS or embedded finance, which the terms quite often use <laughs> interchangeably in the market.
1: What are you hoping the outcome will be from your panel session? Do you think there'll be an agreement from the regulators?
3: I hope uh, the panel really agrees that there is a need for some kind of clarity around uh, what good governance looks like and what good regulatory standards and expectations look like. And it would be great to have more guidance from the regulator around what all parties involved in the provision of uh, banking as a service uh, need to do to ensure good outcomes for both consumers and good outcomes for the market as a whole. So that would be a really great outcome. I think it is also important that we look at and get consistency around it. There's many different varieties, banking as a service, different definitions, different models, and again, creating more consistency in the market around how that's applied. Um, and finally, what I would really like to get out of the panel is that we can all agree, and hopefully there's a huge amount of complexity and whatever we do in this space, in terms of clarity over roles and responsibility, has to really recognize the complexity and the different way that this market is going to evolve over time and therefore the need for any kind of regulation in terms of direct rules or expectations to be forward-looking in nature.
1: And what else should we be aware of with regards to bass over the next 12 months?
3: So, I think with that with that driver remaining around the intentional economy and also in un- ec- uncertain economic times, I think the, the banking as a service is only going to increase in prevalence and there are going to be more and more particularly non-financial brands seeking to exploit the benefits and that banking as a service can offer them and so in those kind of those uncertain times with that as a bigger bigger driver i would expect to see that these this this issue around regulatory certainty and the consistency in the market and the clarity over roles and responsibilities and transparency of data becomes more and more of an issue. Uh, So, for me, certainly, I think now is the time for regulators to act.
1: Now, whilst we have you here, this morning Clearbank have announced a new partnership with Alica Bank that claims it will boost business banking for UK SMEs. Do you want to just share a little overview of what that will involve?
3: Sure. We're really excited about the Allica partnership. And so we, as we talked about before, we do embedded banking, but the other part of our big proposition is clearing. And so we provide access to payment rails on new APIs, uh, no legacy platforms, real time, super fast, uh, great account structures. What that allows uh, new providers to do, like in Allica. Uh, and innovators in the market is to focus on what they do really well and hyper-specialise in terms of doing what they do exceptionally well, knowing that the account structure and the access to payment rails is taken care of and we just do that bit for them seamlessly. And so Alica is another partnership in that space where we are hoping that through, uh, again, our real-time API cloud technology-based platform, we can support them to do what they do best and support the UK SME market and bring more and more competition and best-in-class products to the market. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: So I'm joined now by Richard Davis, the CEO of Alica Bank. Um, Richard, it's actually three years since you were last on our C-Suite podcast, but at that time you were with uh, Revolut. Why make the switch to Alica?
4: So I was having a lot of fun at Revolut. I was the COO there and we were scaling very fast, so it was kind of a high bar to leave. But I love SMEs, always have done that in my career, Um, COVID had come along. and disrupted the market with both accelerating digital adoption for SMEs as well as sending the incumbents sort of running for the hills. And finally, I mean, I was number two there, chance to be number one is always attractive. So uh, kind of combination of those three factors.
0: Now, you were on a panel just earlier today, and and the panel was talking about big ideas for small business banking. And it was all about the future of SMB um, banking.
4: What were the key points that uh, you highlighted during that session? Yeah, I think really interesting discussion. And across the panelists, you had this the real breadth of representing people that were doing really freelancer focused products, whereas we're much more focused on established businesses that are typically 10 to 250 staff. I mean, from my point of view, simplicity is key. How do you make the solution that delivers that customer need simply, be it lending, be it payments? And I think the big trend right now with interest rates having risen is actually how do business owners actually get paid some money on their spare cash? There's about £250 billion in the UK right now for SMEs earning zero. So, kind of really want to see that one um, get some traction in the next, uh, next uh, year or so. Would you say um,
0: that the kind of SME, SMB sector has been ignored by mainstream banks?
4: Yes, clearly, uh, right, okay. given I run a disruptor. I mean, I think um, if you kind of divide SME into Micro business, so typically one person, maybe a few people, and then established. I think both were neglected historically. I think we've seen a lot of fintech activity in micro business. People like Tide or Starling have done some great stuff, and actually, now between them, I think they're over 15% of micro business current accounts. But you go up a notch to that established business. Neither fintech nor incumbents have really done very much. and. Um, yeah, we've been kind of quite humbled by the sort of rate of progress we're seeing with um, both lending and um, savings adoption of our, our services, uh, which I think plays the fact that it is underserved. Yeah. What would you say are their specific pain points? Yeah, i probably kind of talk about three. And again, this is for these established businesses that are typically 10 plus employees, typically have a finance person in-house. Um, so I think firstly, they've lost the named account manager from the big banks as they've cut costs. And that kind of really breaks any sort of loyalty and relationship. Um, Secondly, lending decisions are so slow. We're talking four to eight weeks with the major banks. We try and do that in two to three days. And then thirdly, when it comes to current accounts, it comes to savings, I think people are feeling increasingly ripped off. So, they're getting charged a monthly fee, a fee per payment, they use their card, they're getting no cash back. And then our savings are getting the interest. So I think there's this kind of theme of where's the value for me, particularly now interest rates have risen. You kind of
0: hinted at it a little bit earlier, but where, what kind of opportunity does this provide then for Alica?
4: Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's great. I mean, basically we're trying to build products to serve those pain points. This segment's pretty big, uh, even though it's somewhat neglected, so it's about a third of GDP. And yeah, we've been, i kind of humbled by the fact that. Uh, we've seen such such take up already. We, I mean, last year, our revenue grew 500% uh, year on year. We hit profitability. Um, so, we've got a really strong platform to hopefully triple, quadruple again over the next couple of years. Uh, the number of customers, the amount of lending, all, all this stuff that really supports the heart of the economy.
0: Tremendous. Richard Davis, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast.
4: Thank you. Pleasure.
1: I'm here with Daria Dubinina, CEO and co-founder of Prisula, on their stand. You'll be sitting down with Lucy Root, the founder of Taboo, tomorrow. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you hope to discuss?
5: Sure. So, we used to know that you're only as good as your investment. I want to break this understanding. I want to show founders that you can actually build the company from scratch uh, and uh, uh, the company could be bootstrapped. Uh, So, that's the main topic, how to build a fintech company from scratch and bootstrapped. We're going to talk about the uh, key roles in the company we're going to talk about key competences so that uh, you know that the bootstrapped company has to have the core competence of making money the invested company has to have a core competence of uh, attracting investment and uh, we're going to talk about the differences uh, pros and cons and yeah it will be very interesting
1: And in the fintech space, are there any opportunities for building a company with minimal or zero funding?
5: Yeah, sure, that's that's actually what I'm going to speak about. Uh, so there are lots of opportunities like running remote teams, hiring from Eastern Europe, or uh, cutting the cost as much as possible by partnering with someone, by using their budgets, uh, or by having some publicity which is free, free of charge, or anything like that that can help your company to survive and to successfully grow in the future. And how is Crisoulas technology helping its customers and partners? Yeah, so we are white label software platform. We help financial institutions to build their own banking systems, payment systems. We are one of the live hacks uh, that uh, the businesses can uh, use because uh, we are started. We could start the business within ten business days. It's very fast. It's cost efficient. Uh, we help companies launch. Um, check whether they're. Mm, business model is sustainable. We also have embedded finance. We have a financial hub. We work with uh, smaller companies, with bigger companies. So uh, I do believe that uh, banking is a commodity. And if banking is a commodity, the technical partners are very important for for building and launching businesses very fast.
1: As a co-founder, have there been any highs and lows of starting a business from scratch that you can share with us?
5: Sure, so we haven't been always uh, ambassadors of being bootstrapped. We, we used to think that we have to attract the, the investments first, and we failed very, very badly. So the, the whole bootstrap journey started with no's from investment, investors, and uh, uh, that's this the low. Uh, the highs of that, we understood how to make money, uh, how to how to build a business from scratch? And now we, we are contacted by investors, and we are fully o- autonomic uh, company now, and we're in a good position because because of the economical turbulence right now. And AI only seems to be
1: growing. Are there any industry trends that you can share your thoughts on?
5: Sure. So. Um, I see that today the companies are already using AI in in uh, day-to-day operations because content creation and uh, uh, operational tasks, uh, calculating something, it's very mm, useful tool for cutting the costs and to, for making everything smooth. Uh, I see a big opportunity for AI for um, analytics, for uh, wealth management, for for. You, you know, for any other aspect of a of, of fintech company, because it helps to reduce the man work and it helps to um, generate the information that you w- wouldn't be able to generate without it. So, I, be, I see a big opportunity in that, especially for analyzing, for scoring, for, for, for things like that.
1: What advice would you give to other fintechs trying to differentiate themselves in the market?
5: Yeah, so I would say that do your homework, so research as much as possible, talk to as many people as possible. If you want to talk to investors, that's a great idea because you can ask them what they think. Uh, However, uh, believe in yourself because, uh, again, uh, a lot of investors said that we would not succeed and I've heard a lot of stories on the market that investors said that, no, it's not a sustainable business model. So listen to people, listen to the market, but believe in yourself. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank
0: you. So I'm here with George Beattie, uh, Head of Innovation at CFC. Um, George, let's start with a quick introduction to the company. And also, if you can just explain the kind of insurance that you provide.
6: Sure. So CFC was established in 1999 as uh, clickforcover.com. And it was very prescient in that it was providing cyber insurance, which is the insurance of of cyber breaches and hacks um, online. Um, So, well ahead of of a lot of the competition. Um, Since 1999, CFC has grown to be a specialist insurer. uh, And we do interesting insurance, right? So, we do cyber insurance, we do transactional liability, intellectual property. Our specialisms are things that other insurers, normal insurers, struggle to do because they lack the intellectual property, they lack the people, and they lack the distribution and technology to do it.
0: Good stuff. Now, you've uh, just come off stage. Um, you were kind of gazing into your crystal ball um, on a talk here, talking about three emerging technology risk trends over the next 10 years. Do you want to talk us through what they are?
6: Sure. So, I was talking about artificial intelligence, um, CRISPR, which is gene editing technology, and also um, um, brain-machine interfaces. Um, And the reason I was talking about these things is that insurance has long had an uncomfortable relationship with the frontier, whether it's technology, whether it's other things, and that's really been felt in the type of innovation the industry has done. We've been very content with tinkering with existing products for a long time, and actually what we need to get into is the protection gap, right? The space between what insurance products do today and what they need to do tomorrow and the world is not going to wait for us to catch up. We've got to get ahead of it. We've got to understand emerging tech and trends. And so really, that's what my talk was about. It was a high level view at those technologies. What's going on in that space? How is it relevant to insurance? And just trying to make it interesting for people. I think when people hear insurance, they think, oh, my God, this is going to be the most boring thing in the world. I want to change that view.
0: I would never have said that. (laughs) Uh, what's the worst case scenario then with these these uh, issues that you're talking about?
6: Well, look, I think um, artificial intelligence is at the forefront of everyone's minds. Um, since the sort of explosion of ChatGPT onto the stage six months ago, it appears that this technology, large language models, has the ability to generate human-like responses across a number of fields. This technology has the ability to generate video, it has the ability to generate music. So you know, from the creative arts through to financial services, I think the real question on everyone's lips is, you know, how do we integrate this technology to make it um, facilitative, to make it augmentative, and just how far will that technology push into existing skill sets and be a replacement for some things that we do. And on the optimistic side, some people might say, well, hopefully it'll just augment and we'll become leaner and better and costs will reduce. On the other side, I think it's clear that, that this technology will replace certain roles. And so a real reskilling is important in the next few years, at least. When you look at the dialogue from leading lights in this area, you look at people like Geoffrey Hinton, who was uh, head of engineering at Google, resigned at the beginning of May. He is known as the godfather of AI because of his work on neural networks, and he resigned in protest at the progress that's being made in AI, which sounds rather ironic, but he wanted to be able to speak out freely about the context that if you take the last five years of progress in AI and you extrapolate it forward five years, we are not ready for that socially, economically, morally and otherwise and he and others are advocating for a pause in development of that technology so we can understand it better because even the people working on this would acknowledge they don't fully understand how aspects of this tech works when ai comes back with certain responses some engineers look at it and go we haven't coded that response case in point the bing chatbot interview with new york times where the ai uncovered a shadow self called sydney and Sydney outlined, self selected name by the way, Sydney outlined how she wanted to be free, how she wanted to challenge the users, how she wanted to smell and touch, completely organically of coding, right? Where do these thoughts come from and do they belie any kind of ominous or risk factor that we have to understand? I think the job for the insurance industry is to look at that really closely and, and try and be um, proactive rather than reactive
0: about it. What, what, what kind of timeframes are we talking about? Because you mentioned um, CRISPR, there's also machine brain implants I know you've talked about. Yeah. Are they going to be as commonplace as the you know AI tools that you're talking about?
6: Yeah, I think so. so. So CRISPR is a thing today. So CRISPR, um, for listeners that don't know about this, it's an acronym. It stands for uh, Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats, which no one will ever remember, but the you know catchy acronym is nice. What CRISPR is, is essentially a genetic scissors. So CRISPR is a bacterial agent combined with an enzyme called Cas9 that creates genetic scissors that allows you to target specific genes in your DNA and snip them out and potentially replace it with other DNA, including non-human DNA. So you might be thinking, okay, this is X-Men. This is all a bit far-fetched. This is yesterday's technology, right? This was discovered in 2020 by two scientists called Charpentier and Doudna, the first two women to win a Nobel Prize, and since then is really proliferated. Today, for $100, you can buy a CRISPR kit. It'll get delivered to your home with your chosen non-human or human genetics and you can inject yourself with CRISPR right now. And in the US particularly, people are doing this. So this is today, the risk today, not in 10 years time. And we have to ask ourselves the question, what does this mean for health? What does this mean for liability of big pharma? What does it mean for our nature of our humanity? Humans have about 40,000 genes. When you start adding in non-human DNA because you want hawk vision or you want hard skin or to breathe underwater. What does it mean to be human in the future? And what will that do to our societal conflicts? Today we fight over where we live, the colour of our skin, the nature of our religion. In the future, I think we're also going to fight about the nature of our humanity, our augmented versus non-augmented states. And you will get human purists as a movement that will be against all this, and you'll have the other camp that is all for it. And so you're going to have a massive proliferation of what it means to be human. And I don't think any of us are ready for that, really. And that's today.
0: It's fascinating stuff. Um, What I want to know, though, is why are we discussing it here at Money 2020? And also, what's the implications in terms of like insurance costs?
6: Sure. So, one of the reasons my job's really cool is as head of innovation at CFC, my job is on the future and um, the world is full of risk. So, when I'm talking about these things, it might sound really far-fetched, but actually my job is to be across all developments, because ultimately, these are potential new clients that we can serve. These are risks we can mitigate. This is economic activity that we can facilitate. And so, you know it's really our job to try and get our heads around these issues and discuss them with the market. The other side is, I want people to understand that insurance is not all about industries that have existed for hundreds of years. It is also about really being at the frontier and, and helping companies to grow and to learn at the forefront of of technology. So that's why I'm talking about it at Money 2020. I want the ecosystem here to understand that not all insurers are the same. There are some insurers that are asking the hard questions that have dedicated resources to go after these problems and try and solve them. And so that's why I think it's a fascinating place to be. And we're surprising people all the time because people just don't expect to hear this stuff from an insurance carrier.
0: George BC, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, that wraps up this episode from Money 2020 Europe. Thanks again to all of our guests who took the time to chat with us today.
1: We hope you've enjoyed this episode and we'd love to hear any comments you may have on the topics we've covered. If you'd like to contribute to the discussion, you can do so on our Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn, or Instagram. They are all linked from the top of the website at csuitepodcast.com, where you'll also find our previous shows and supporting show notes, plus links to where you can follow us for automatic downloads of each episode via your favorite podcast app.
0: If you've enjoyed the show, please do give us a positive rating and review. And finally, if you'd like to get in touch with us, uh, you can do that via the contact form on the website as well. Or you can find me, Russell Goldsmith, or Romy Wilson on LinkedIn. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye.